Let me ask you this. Have you ever been unjustly criticized? Like, has someone ever criticized you and just completely unwarranted? I mean, you weren't there, you didn't say it, you weren't a part of it. I mean, they criticized you for something and it was clear you had nothing to do with it. Now, let me ask you this. On the other hand, have you ever been criticized for something and it was warranted? Like you dropped the ball, you didn't show up, you, were, you freaked out, you kind of had a bad moment or you're a bad representation maybe of the gospel and have you ever received criticism and you're like, yeah, I, I actually deserve that. You know, here's why I bring this up. I like to read different authors and, and people that criticize Christianity. Now, I'm kind of curious, like what does an atheist have to say about Christians right now? What does the non-believer think about Christians and how we're handling this, this cultural moment we're in? And it's interesting to kind of read perspectives and, and many times I'll read a, a deep criticism of Christians or Christianity and it's unwarranted, meaning it's misunderstood, that it's, it's impartial, it's, it's coming from this place of hate. But I will say other times, people criticize Christianity and it's completely warranted. Like we dropped the ball. We were a bad representation. We crossed over into a boundary we probably shouldn't have crossed over into. Here's what I'm getting at. Now more than ever, we have an opportunity to show love when people think we'll freak out we have an opportunity to show self-control when people are trying to maybe just move us to just lose it. We have an opportunity right now, I think, to show people what following Jesus truly looks like. You know, there's uh, many philosophers who talk about why they don't believe in Jesus, why they don't believe in the gospel, why they can never be a Christian. Maybe you've heard of a guy named Bertrand Russell. He, he wrote something called Why I'm Not a Christian. And I want to just read this to you. Here's kind of his summary. And then there's a lot of little points throughout his writing, but here's one of the main thoughts. He says, I think there are many good points upon which I agree with Christ, a great deal more than many professing Christians. I do not know that I can go all the way with him, but I could, but I could go with him much farther than most professing, professing Christians can. I do not profess to live up to them, that is Christ's standards myself. But then after all, it is not quite the same thing as for a Christian, is it? There is the idea that we should all be wicked if we did not hold to the Christian religion. It seems to me that the people who have held to it have been, for the most part, extremely wicked. His point being, um, I like Christ's rules, laws, standards. I, I don't personally live up to them. Well, I don't claim to be one, but Christians who do they're the ones who claim to live up to these standards, but they actually seem to be the ones that are, are most wicked. Now, I fully don't agree with that summary. We could obviously make an argument for a case that the Christians have started more hospitals, more schools, more orphanages than any other group of people. But I mean, let's, let's give them credit here. I think in many ways, we might say one thing, profess one thing, and our life looks completely different. And I, I think that we need to stop giving the world ammunition for reasons why they don't like Christians or Christianity. You know, there's many people who are well known for saying, I love your Jesus and I love your Christ, but I don't love your Christians. And, and I think that what we're trying to get at is how do we, with our lifestyle and our actions, show something different? I love what Peter said in 1 Peter 2. He says, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Listen, Peter is saying something about, about critics. Peter's saying, you're going to have criticism and let's, let us, by the will of God, do right. So we can just put them to silence. Like, we shouldn't give non-believers any more ammunition. Listen, the gospel is going to be offensive. I mean, think about the gospel. The gospel says you and I are wicked. We're born in sin. I mean, we are fallen, broken people who've turned our backs against God. We live just sinful lives. It's worthy of punishment and judgment and hell. 
but God, but God intervened. Jesus came to save. Jesus came to make us new and make us whole. And that is an offensive belief to many people. They're saying, I'm not wicked. I'm not bad. And I'm not as terrible as you think I am. And we're saying, no, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The, the, the point is the gospel itself is incredibly offensive. Now, I'm okay with that. Let the gospel be offensive. It's also the power of God of salvation. The gospel offends me, but it also resurrects me. The, the gospel says I'm guilty before God, but it also gives me new life in Jesus. But listen, Christians, we don't need to be offensive. Let the gospel be offensive. Let us preach and communicate a message. I think, again, oftentimes the gospel's offensive and then Christians are offensive in a different way. And what I'm trying to suggest right now is, as Peter said, let us, by just our good works, put to silence foolish men, even if it's not warranted, or even if it is warranted, let us by our lifestyle put them to silence. Alexander McLaren, just a famous old preacher from a century ago, says, the world takes its notion of God, most of all, from those who say they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us, they only hear about Jesus. They, they read our lives more than they read the Bible. So he, he's saying, Christians, let's, let's have a different standard. Let's, ha- let's, let's take it to another level. Let's not give the unbeliever more ammunition for, see that? Do you see how Christians are responding in this moment? That's why I'm not a Christian. Let the gospel be offensive, but we don't need to add to that offense. We, we, don't want, it, we want the gospel to be that stumbling block, not us. The gospel is going to offend enough. We need to preach it and proclaim it, not shy away from it, absolutely. But I think sometimes we can get in the way. So here's what the author's saying in Hebrews 13. He says, let brotherly love continue, verse one. So one, he's assuming there's brotherly love. He knows there's brotherly love. He's saying, let it continue. And then verse two through six, and really the rest of the chapter, but verse two through six, he's saying, here's what love looks like. So here's the face of love. So I'm going to point out really four points as we walk through verse two through six. We're going to break this down verse by verse because there's so much here. And I might focus more on one point than the other just because I think there's more content there for us. But let's look at this. Uh, Here's what love looks like. Number one, hospitality instead of fear. Number two, support instead of neglect. Number three, holiness instead of lust. Number four, contentment instead of coveting. He says, you want to know what love looks like? Here's the first one, hospitality instead of fear. Let's look at the first point. Read with me verse two, one more time. Hebrews 13, verse two, it says, do not forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Let me read to you one more translation. The ESV, I think, put it very well. It said it this way, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now listen, the point isn't about entertaining strangers, right? Or entertaining angels. I know I can read that verse and be like, wait, 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 what is he saying? Like we can kind of get focused. The point is about showing hospitality to strangers. You're like, well, why does he bring the angel part? Well, again, remember, these are Jewish believers who had a Jewish context. They would know the story of Abraham and Lot. And let me just really quick give you those examples. Abraham one day was visited by a few guests and they were angels. He knew there was something different about them, not, not necessarily angels, but he showed hospitality and kindness to them. And at the end, they said, hey, Abraham, you're going to receive your promise very shortly, very soon. Another time, Lot entertained angels. There's angels who went to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember where Lot stood at the gate? And he knows there's something kind of divine about them. He doesn't say he necessarily knows his angels, but he goes, listen, you let, just stay with me. Come to my place, and then I'll send you off tomorrow. Let me take care of you. Let me feed you, but you, you need to go. And if you remember, the angels then actually take him and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah before judgment. 
Now, uh, this, I'll be honest, is like on my spiritual bucket list. I would love to, you know, unknowingly entertain an angel. Like, I, I, I think it'd be so cool to get to heaven one day and be like, oh, I knew it. I knew you're an angel. Like, man, the way you disappeared was way too fast. Like, I knew you're, there's something different about you. Like, I think that'd be so cool. That would be awesome to, to do this. Um, but here's kind of the play on words. The idea is entertain them. Don't miss out on entertaining them because with Abraham, with Lot, there came a blessing. Meaning if Abraham didn't take the men's show of hospitality, he would have missed out on hearing about that promise and being affirmed of his promise. Lot, if he didn't show hospitality, it seems would have missed out on just the being delivered. The point is, many times when we entertain or show hospitality to strangers, um, God, I think, is trying to reveal something in us or do something for us. Meaning it's when we show love in just a, a unique kind of way that we might experience deliverance from something, healing from something. We just experience the blessings of God like Lot, like Abraham. But I don't want to get lost in the entertaining angels part. The real part of this is saying, do not, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. The main point is, hey, love looks like this. Hospitality to a foreigner. Hospitality to a stranger. Hospitality is someone who doesn't look like you, talk like you, act like you, a stranger. That's the word, a foreigner. Now let's talk about this because I think this is incredibly profound. This word in Hebrews 13, and like I said in the ESV, this word hospitality, or for us in the New King James, it says entertain. This is the Greek word, which I might pronounce wrong, and that's all right. Uh, it's philoxenia. So hospitality is this word. Now it's a compound word. It's taking two words together. Philo, which means friend, or it also points us to phileo. Maybe you know that word, like love. It's that brotherly love. And then you have the last part, uh, xenos, which is stranger or foreigner. So let's put that together. And you can see it here on your screen. Philo xenia is the love of strangers or the love of foreigners. He says this, do not forget to love the stranger, to show hospitality, which is you're gonna love the foreigner, love the stranger. Now, this, this word might sound like another familiar word. You might know the word xenophobia, which is the fear of others, essentially, the fear of the foreigner, the fear of the stranger, the fear of the outsider. This is interesting. Biblically speaking, he's given us the opposite. Don't be xenophobic towards the stranger, towards the for foreigner. He's literally using this word, have this brotherly love for the stranger or foreigner. If there's anyone who should love a stranger more, it is Christians, followers of Jesus. There is this call to say, fight the mentality that says it's us versus them. I think we can all do that, depending on what your us is. We can all have this sense of us and the sense of them. We think like this, they think like that, and we have an us versus them mentality or a they mentality. Well, they're the problems with what's happening right now. They're the, and we can create, in a sense, these labels that we just put on someone, and now we've dismissed them. Really what happens is we can, we can demonize people by saying, well, they're the ones, they're the reason. And so we're demonizing them, we're making them the enemy. When we demonize someone, here's what we're doing. We're dehumanizing them. We're, we're kind of looking at them as, in a way as less than an image bearer of God. We're saying they're different, they're foreign, they're strange, their beliefs, their actions, their attitude, their lifestyle. And we can begin to put them in another box so we don't have to love them, we don't have to show them kindness or hospitality. The author is saying, Christians, you want your love to look like hospitality where you love the stranger, you love the foreigner. I've been so challenged by this, this thought this week. It's honestly been one of those things where I think the Lord's been rocking me in a lot of different ways when it comes to this because it's one thing from someone being a statistic to knowing their story. 
It's one thing from saying, well, this percentage of people, and it's not that big a percentage, and you can make them a statistic, but when you get to know them and you get to hear their story, there's something that the Lord does. It's basically saying, turn them from an outsider to an insider. They're an outsider to you. Make them an insider. The idea, again, it's like they're the other. The, you know the other, the, the one you don't like. They're just different. They're other than us. And he's saying, turn them from an other to another. Meaning, in the New Testament, the Bible's filled with all these one another's. Over 50 one another's. Love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, give to one another. There's these constant one another's. It's saying, turn that outsider, that foreigner, that stranger. Don't make them work to get in the community. Turn them into another. Turn them into their part of this. I'm going to love you, serve you, give to you, pray for you. Hospitality, hospitality I believe, is radically redefined in the Bible. I love this thought of, it's literally saying this, this philoxenia, this love for the stranger. Not to, be, not to have xenophobia, but to have this love for the foreigner, the stranger, the outsider. This is what we're called to as Christians. I mean, you think about Middle Eastern hospitality. It's just another level. You know, I think that when I think of hospitality and I'm trying to define it, my mind can kind of go, it's like Martha Stewart hospitality, right? Like you got your vase, made everything look nice, or you have like your little, you know, trinkets out. I have no idea. But you can kind of like have this image in your mind of like, you make your house very hospitable, and that might be part of it. But really, we look at hospitality as having people like us over to our place, people who think like us, look like us, act like us. And the Bible's saying that's not hospitality. Hospitality is having the foreigner, the stranger, the outsider, the other come inside. It's saying, I'm going to love you despite your differences. So what is hospitality? A guy who wrote a lot about this named Joshua Jip, great last name, uh, he said this, hospitality is the act or process, listen, whereby the identity of the stranger is transformed into that of guest. The primary impulse of hospitality is to create a safe and welcoming place where a stranger can be converted to a friend. The practice of hospitality to strangers very frequently hopes to create relationships and friendships between those who were previously either alienated at enmity, or simply unknown to one another. You're turning a stranger to a friend. It's, it's going to the sense of, uh, I, I, you are different to me than thou. You're my friend. I know you. I, I care about you. I want to hear your story. I want to listen. It's changing completely how you approach them. This is where the church, I think, we need to step up, which is we need to be the most hospitable people. You know, again, I, I was thinking about this. I, I like, tend to think my wife and I are pretty hospitable. I'm like, you know, we open up our house a lot. We'll have people over. We'll have food. We'll do things, whatever. And in my mind, I'm like, God, I think, has been rocking me saying, that's not hospitality. You're having people over who love you, who know you, who think like you, who are part of the church. True hospitality is taken in that person who does not think like you, who, in fact, might hate you. It's having that person over who has a different worldview that's maybe just completely different than yours. And it's showing love to them. And it's embracing them in a, in a very just profound way. Here's why we do this. This is obviously what God did for us. I mean, is this not what God did for us where we were the outsider and God brought us in? The Bible says we are strangers. We were alienated. We were at enmity with God, at war with God. And yet God has brought us in. And yet God has created a safe environment for us to be able to express our emotions, our feelings to him and say, God, like David in the Psalms to express that. And God says, yeah, and I love you. I take you in. I take all the good and the bad and the other. I take all of it in. See, this is what God did for us. Again, Joshua Jip went on to say this. God's hospitality is extended, listen, to his lost, broken, needy, and often stigmatized people. This divine hospitality comes to us in the person of Jesus. 
The divine host who extends God's hospitality to sinners, outcasts, and strangers, and thereby draws them and us into friendship with God. God's embrace of humanity into friendship with him is the ultimate form of welcoming the stranger. From Genesis to Revelation, we see God just have this inviting presence. We see God in the Garden of Eden create everything beautiful and perfect and good. It was hospitality. It was saying, come, enjoy, come, be a part. We see when they turn their backs against God and you enter in the book of Exodus and they're slaves, God says, listen, I prepared for you this promised land. I'm welcoming you into something beautiful and good again. You just constantly see God have this heart of hospitality, so much so that God says, hey, Jewish nation, the ones I've called the Israelites, I want you to show hospitality because you know why? You've been the stranger. You've been the foreigner. You need to show this kind of love because that's you. Don't forget who you are. It's Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. It says, listen, the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow. Listen, and he loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love, this is the command of them, love the stranger. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. God is saying, don't forget who you were. You were the stranger, you were the outsider, you were the outcast. Now, when the the stranger comes to you in your land, you love them. You maybe didn't receive that, but you will show that. Maybe you're treated as an outsider, but you will not treat others as an outsider. You will not say, but for years we were treated this way. For years we were slaves in Egypt, and now we're going to treat other people the way we were treated. No. He goes, you're going to step it up. You know what it feels like to be the outsider, the stranger. You're going to love. You're going to love them. I love them. I don't show partiality. I don't favor one more than the other. I'm going to show them love, this philoxenia, this love of the stranger. This is what God is just constantly modeled. I mean, obviously all the way to the person of Jesus. I mean, you, you almost can't find a story in the gospel where Jesus isn't coming to a meal or leaving from a meal. I mean, Jesus is constantly surrounded by people, whether believers at their place, unbelievers at their place, sharing a meal, having hospitality. Sometimes I love this, inviting himself over. You know, like, I'm going to make you create hospitality. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your place. Sometimes just, you just see these moments, though, where Jesus was just incredibly hospitable we're incredibly welcoming. And this is what we see in the story of the Good Samaritan, the person who's beaten and abused and left for dead. And a different, you know, a Jew walks by and a Pharisee walks by, but then here comes the Samaritan, the, the one who the Jews despise, the half-breed, the half-Jew, the half-Samaritan. They consider them dogs, but the, the Samaritan's the one who showed love. The Samaritan's the one who said, I'm gonna bring him to an end and pay for his needs, his medical needs, his housing. That's hospitality. That's loving your neighbor. The point being, Jesus is saying, look it, I want you to show a unique kind of hospitality. A hospitality that goes far above and beyond, just can I get you something to drink? The, the one that says, I'm gonna welcome you in, I'm gonna meet your needs. I mean, this is what Jesus was constantly doing. John Tyson, a pastor who, who wrote a book essentially on this, said this. He says, Jesus, listen, Jesus was able to model what our culture is craving. Spaces of welcome where strangers, enemies, outsiders, and others can become our friends. Jesus created pockets of love in a culture of fear that formed a new kind of community in the world, something he called the church. Honestly, this is why I love the church. The church is just a bunch of random people from different backgrounds, different stories, who you think there'd be no way they could ever sit in a room together, and yet there's this love for each other. There's this common ground in Jesus. The church is the most unique thing you'll find on earth. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, your background, your story, your race, your gender, your ethnicity, you come together and you say, we are one in Christ. And there's something unique. Jesus created this unique sense of hospitality 
through the church. If anyone's to be hospitable, it's us. If anyone's to love the stranger, the foreigner, it's us. This is why I believe the Lord's been challenging me, which, which is I am called to show hospitality not just to my friends, to my enemies, to those who think differently of me, those who hate me. I'm called to show them hospitality. You know, there's this woman, um, Rosaria Butterfield, again, another great last name, um, but she wrote a book and it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing radical, Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. I love that, radically ordinary hospitality. And she, this woman's an amazing woman. Um, you can re- she has a few different books about her story, her testimony. Um, I want to share briefly, Rosaria was uh, a professor at Syracuse University. She was a professor of English and women's studies. Um, she shares her story how her and her partner, she's a lesbian professor, her and her partner just hated Christians. They hated what they stood for. They viewed them as just, into- she wrote in her writing, she viewed them as like intolerant caveman who just dragged their knuckles around. They're, they're uneducated, they're unlearned, and they, they could never understand someone like me. So she wrote something, she wrote this article, and a pastor reached out to her and said, hey, I'm so sorry for your hurt and pain. My wife and I would love to have you and your partner over. So Rosaria decided, yes, I'll go to this pastor's house, because in her mind, she's like, this will be gr- a great case study for my new book. Like, I can just rip apart the pastor and rip apart Christians. I can actually be in their home. And she writes it as, we were going to go so we could just tear them apart. And she explains something. She says, you know, when they had us over, they welcomed us. They made us feel extremely loved. They knew we were vegetarians, so they cooked us a meatless meal. She said that they knew we cared about the environment, so they turned off their AC and had some fans on. They never once brought up the Bible, God, Jesus, which I was, she's like, I was shocked by that. I was waiting for them to pound me over the head with it. They made us feel like humans and they loved us. And so they invite us over again next week and we came again next week and next week and next week. And she, st- she shares how over a period of months, she's like, let me just read this Bible thing. She started reading the Bible. She started having questions. She started talking to her partner going, is it possible this is true? Is it possible this Jesus guy really is who he says he is? Is it possible that he really died and rose again and people saw, is it possible? She started asking herself questions. And she's writing her, her own biography saying, I just was being haunted and plagued by these questions. And it led her to this point where she started asking the pastor questions finally. She had a good relationship with him. She looks at her partner one day and says, listen, I love you and I care for you, but I cannot be in a relationship with you anymore. And she, she left her partner. And she walks through this in a deep way, talking about the highs and the lows, the pain, the struggles, the battles. And she just goes, I, I think that I'm going to follow Jesus, and that means submission in every area of my life to Jesus. That means submission to my sexuality. And so she, she submits everything essentially over to him. And here's what she says. She basically says, his hospitality created an environment where I could hear the gospel, where I could believe, where I could feel safe, where I could share my opinions, my frustrations. And she describes this radical hospitality of what led her to Jesus. And so she wrote that book, Radically Ordinary Hospitality in a Postmodern, in a Post-Christian World. And she said, we need to lead the way. And here's a quote from her book, and I just want to read it to you. She said, Jesus was able, sorry, the gospel comes, I'm, I'm messing up. God calls us to be hospitable to the stranger. And this is a command, listen, that is true whether we are gaining or losing the culture. This is so relevant to right now. But Christians need to know, that we do not have a good reputation for being hospitable in the LGBTQ community. The LGBT community is one given to hospitality. And in that community, a home is open each night for fellowship, help, care, and connection. By contrast, 
it seems like Christians are on a starvation diet of community. If Christians want to step into the lives of our neighbor, neighbors in meaningful ways, we need to make hospitality a commitment. We need to be ready for more organic forms of hospitality than what we traditionally use. And we need to be ready to be more vulnerable in our role as both host and guest. Again, coming from a woman who came out of a lifestyle of teaching women's studies uh, at, at Syracuse, brilliant, bright, sharing life with her partner to saying, I've experienced radical, ordinary hospitality and it transformed me. It led me to Jesus. It led me to this place of surrender of, okay, Jesus, there's something about you. And I, if, if me, following you means I literally submit every area of my life to you, I'm gonna submit every area of my life to you. She's, and she's calling us to a higher standard saying, they, the LGBTQ community shows so much hospitality, but we should be leading the way in this. And I, guys, I think that is a call for us. This is a follower of Jesus who, who shares her story and says, Christians, elevate your game. Like, take it to another level. Don't just have people like you over. Listen, learn, be there, be approachable. I think of what Jesus said in Revelation 3 when he's speaking to one of the churches. He, he said this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Like, what is that? Jesus says, I'm standing at the door of your life, of your heart. I'm knocking. If you just open, I'm going to come in and dine with you. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to fellowship with you. I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to be hospita hospitable together. We're going to share life together. We're going to have shared moments together. There's going to be intimacy there. And, and Jesus invites us into this. And church, we are invited into this. And, and I know there's questions like, how do we do this? I would say, um, start with your, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members, a stranger, someone different from you, someone who maybe, like Luke 14, Jesus gave a beautiful parable. Invite the people over who could never pay you back. Maybe it's just getting to know your neighbor and saying, uh, eventually over time, like, hey, I know no one does this anymore, but we'd love to have you over. We'd love to cook a meal for you. I'd love to take you out. You can invite people into your spiritual home. Hey, come to my church. You know, let me take your lunch after and just pay for the meal. We can invite people into this different, these moments. It's for us, we're gonna be doing something called Alpha. I'll share more about Alpha in a few weeks, but it's creating these moments where you say, come, ask your questions, discuss, dialogue, vent. You know, come hear about the big questions of life we all have and let's talk about this and let us show you love in this. There are some things we wanna just implement and do this way. And this can take it on many forms. Yes, Christians should automatically be doing it with each other, but also with the foreigner and the stranger and inviting them to those who are different. Listen, what does love look like? Love looks like hospitality of the stranger instead of fear of the stranger. It looks like love for the outsider instead of fear of the outsider. We'll move on, but I hope that just registers and sinks into our heart, and I hope it changes our community. Number two is this, what does love look like? Love looks like support instead of neglect. Verse three, support instead of neglect. He says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. So he says, okay, number two, you need to support the prisoners, support those who are mistreated since you yourself are in the body also, since you yourselves ha have needs. Here's kind of the idea. Remember the context. The context is there are Jewish followers of Jesus now. And they're being persecuted by their own. They're being persecuted by Rome. They're going through it. Some are being in prison. Some are being fed to lions. I mean, they're just going through it. And the author's saying, love looks like remembering those who are mistreated. Love looks like going to the prisoner. And again, those are prisoners for the gospel's sake, but it could also just be the prisoner in general. But he says, remember those. I, you know, I, I was able at a very young age to be part of some prison ministry things. And it's, it's one of those moments that's kind of, it's kind of shocks your system. But once you get in, 
And once you love well and listen well, I mean, you have an opportunity to make an impact. But I, I wanna say this extends beyond the prisoner because again, these are prisoners for the gospel's sake. He says, remember those who are mistreated. So the idea of this is if you see oppression happening, if you see something happening that's unjust, remember those, go to those, love those. And he says this, you are in the body also, meaning you know what it's like to have physical needs. Like you know what it's like to be hungry, tired, lonely, frustrated, cold. I mean, Paul in different epistles goes, hey, can someone bring me a blanket? Like I'm cold. He's like, you're in the body. You know what it's like. You need to remember them. Now, uh, I love how John MacArthur describes this. He says, find the people who are hungry. Find the people who are oppressed. Find the people who are hurting. Find the people with material needs and physical needs. Come out of your safe and prosperous situation. Go be with them. Go work with them. Go move about them, which means going into unsafe neighborhoods and making yourself vulnerable because people will be hitting you up for money now. It means coming out in some cases, living among them. He goes, go to the vulnerable. Get out of safety. This is the idea. Because when you were a Christian this time and you would go to the prisons and meet another Christian, they're probably understanding this is a Christian meeting a Christian. And so there'd be a sense of maybe a fear of, are they going to throw me in prison while I'm with them? Or if I go to that people group, is something going to happen to me? And, and really he's saying the whole idea of Jesus leaving heaven, coming to earth, is put himself to us in a vulnerable situation, going to us. Hey, you do the same. This idea of remember those in prison, that's like an interesting command. Um, remember in different parts of the Bible can mean a few things. It can be, mean give. It can be give. Paul talks about giving to those in prison, himself included. Uh, remember can mean you're encouraging them. You visit to just encourage, to love, to share, to speak over, to speak into. It could just mean praying for them. There's something beautiful about praying for prisoners, those who are in prison. Um, there is a ministry called Open Door, um, and it just talks about different prisoners for the gospel, different people in different countries who are in prison. You can read their stories, you can pray for them, you can engage with them in different ways. The, the, the whole point, though, for us is, listen, it's not enough just to remember those in prison or those who are mistreated. How do we lovingly support them? Through words, through money, through time, through prayer, Remember those who are mistreated. His point is, you want to know what love looks like? Hospitality to those, it's hospitality instead of fear. It looks like support instead of neglect. Number three, we'll, we'll look at verse five uh, or verse four. It talks about holiness instead of lust. Holiness instead of lust. Look at verse four. It says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. You're like, where is this coming from? So he's, he's talking about what love looks like. And he says, man, hospitality and those in prison. And you know what? It looks like holiness in relationships rather than lust. It looks like having healthy relationships rather than just giving into your heart's desire, lust. So let's talk about this. There's three break breakdowns. He says this simply. First of all, he says marriage is honorable. The bed is undefiled for those who are married. And fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let's talk about this. Marriage is honorable. Man, God honors marriage. There's not a lot of honor towards, towards marriages or towards marriage in general. TV shows, different things. There's a lot of different things that kind of, you know, insinuate, you know, you got to mix things up, spice things up. And, there, and there's really, there's not a lot of honor to marriage. And, and there's such a high view of marriage in the Bible. One, God created marriage. God's the one who created Adam and Eve and put them together. Uh, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God, this is the, or, the origin of marriage is God. God made this happen. God brought this together. There's such a high view of marriage and such a low view of marriage in our culture. We have, as Christians have such a high view of marriage. It is holy, it is sacred, it is called by God, it is beautiful, it is for life. 
Jesus said this about marriage in Matthew 19. Jesus said, listen, he answered them. He says, have you not read that he, God, who made them at the beginning, made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Um, Hear this. When Jesus describes marriage, he goes, let me go back to the origin of marriage. He goes, didn't you read that God made them male and female? It wasn't this polygamous thing. It was one man, it was one woman. It, It was this thing between a man and a woman that God has joined together, that no one should separate that Jesus defines marriage by going to the beginning. And he's saying this is a sacred thing. God has brought them together. The two became one. They became one emotionally, intimately, physically, spiritually. The two become one. They take on a, a new form in a sense because this is a beautiful thing. And people might try to redefine marriage, redefine the family. There might be groups or organizations or individuals that try to dismantle marriage. And listen, the point is you're not arguing against me. You're not trying to debate me. This is Jesus' definition of marriage. One man, one woman, for life, sacred bond, uh, what God has joined together, don't separate. The, the point is, there's such a high view of marriage in the scriptures. And yet, we look at our world today, even in the Christian world, and there's so much pain and hurt, and there's chaos. And I think we're seeing the byproducts of trying to do marriage our way. We're seeing the fruit of trying to do marriage without God. And listen, I know when talking about this, there's a lot of pain. I know there are Christians who've experienced divorce or separation and loss. And listen, we know with God there's, there's healing, there's restoration. We know that God can work in that and reveal and teach and show. And, and he can make all things work together for good, absolutely. But we can't lose sight of this high call of marriage. And listen, this is also not to make the single person feel lesser or secondary or second class. You know, those who are married honor the single as well. Those who are single honor the married well. The whole point is marriage is honorable among all. Like we honor this. We... we we look at this and say, we're going to fight for marriages here at the exchange. We're going, to, we're going to challenge marriages to press into greater intimacy with each other and other couples. We're going to do our best to prepare couples, or if there's counseling, we're going to do our best to come alongside those couples. The hope for us as a church is to say, no, listen, God created this. This isn't man's design. This isn't man's idea of how we think it's best. And so we're not going to redefine it. We're not going to relook. We're going to honor it the way God honors it. And here's what he says next. The marriage bed is undefiled, meaning... Um, God created sex as something for people to enjoy, for two, a husband and wife in the bond of marriage to enjoy. I love the way the Bible does talk about sex because sometimes our culture either glorifies sex or sometimes maybe Christians or others can talk about sex as gross. Sex sometimes is viewed as God, it's everything, it's gross, or the real version of the Bible is it's a gift. Sex is a gift. It's not gross, it's not God, it's a gift. It's a gift God gave us, it's a gift we're to enjoy. I mean, you can read Song of Solomon. There's no shame in in sex and how God used it. We are to enjoy it. You know, you you see there's really two ideas of sex. It's for procreation and recreation. God created us to to keep mankind going, obviously, you know, sex 101, but also uh, for us to enjoy. This is a beautiful thing. There's no shame in it. You know, it's funny to me because I, I just think there can be almost these extremes, even within Christians or the world, the world views sex among Christians. This is something that's supposed to be a beautiful, God-given gift for husband and wife in the bond of marriage to enjoy. And he's saying, have a healthy and holy relationship in, in marriage. And then he says this last phrase, because the fornicator and the adulterer, God will judge. Now, the fornicator, that word is this word in Greek, pornea, where we get our word pornography from. This is very interesting because fornication is not just sex outside of marriage. That is part of it. 
Fornication, pornea, is being sexually stimulated outside of marriage or inside of marriage with other than your partner. So meaning, when people ask the question, how far is too far? Well, we haven't had sex or we've had, how far is too far? Fornication, pornea, is being sexually stimulated outside of marriage. So you're like, whoa, whoa, just I know what you're saying. I, here's what the scriptures say. God, God says, I honor, I el- we elevate marriage. Mar- marriage and sex is sacred. It's beautiful. It's holy. It's a gift to enjoy, but to enjoy in marriage. And this is not common anymore. I think there's this, this research group for Christians called Pew Research, and they said that they interviewed a, a bunch of Christians. Over 50% are saying, we're okay with uh, Christians having casual sex, as long as it's monogamous. Over 50% of Christians took it on themselves to redefine sex and redefine marriage. And here's the thing. Our view of marriage, our view of sex, is going to be different than the world's. It is. Our hope is that people would see life, they would see the joy of marriage, they see the joy of, of sex in the Christian life, that they'd see that, like, wow, you guys seem to enjoy each other, love each other. You're not using terms like the old ball and chain. Like, there's just something different about Christian marriages. There's just something different about intimacy, that there's a true love there. And I love, again, that the Bible does not paint it in this bad light or this over-glorifying it as God. It's saying it's a gift to be enjoyed within the bonds of marriage. Again, because the world doesn't view marriage or sex as holy and sacred, but we're saying we do. This is sacred. This is holy. This is beautiful. Listen, if you've blown it, there's repentance, there's grace, and there's mercy in Jesus. Does it mean we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Like, if you've blown it, know this, there's grace and there's mercy. Do you have to keep doing it because you already went that far? Of course not. God has called us to a higher standard. But I want to say that this is something that God says, it's honorable. It's meant to be enjoyed. The bed's undefiled. And the idea is uh, don't participate, or whether it's an adulterous lifestyle or fornication lifestyle, don't introduce those things. Honor it, love it, have healthy, holy relationships. And this is interesting to me because I want you to catch catch this. He goes from hospitality, prisoners, to marriage and intimacy, to money. And we might think like it's a weird transition, but please hear this. Verse five now, our fourth point, contentment instead of coveting. He says, now let your conduct be without con- co- covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This just seems like a random bunch of verses at the end, but it's not. I want you to stay with me. Um, the, the verse actually says it this way in the ESV, keep your life free from love of money. So think about this. He says, marriage, sex, sacred and holy. Money, not sacred, not holy. Here's what's different. Here's why I'm bringing this up. This was so different for their culture and our culture. Meaning money back then and still today, money is sacred. Money is holy. Meaning you don't share money with anyone. That's yours. But when it comes to sex today and back then, sex is, you share that with everyone and anyone. It's your body. Do whatever you want. See, sex today isn't sacred. Marriage today isn't necessarily sacred. Money is sacred. We protect that. We worship that. We keep that safe. What's interesting about the Christian worldview is saying money is not sacred. Money we give away. We're promiscuous with our money. But when it comes to marriage, that's sacred. When it comes to sex, that's sacred. That's holy. The world views money as sacred and holy and sex not so much. We say sex is sacred and holy and money, we're promiscuous with money. We should be the most generous. We, she says, make yourself free from the love of money. Again, this is just so different than the world. I, mean, I think I've mentioned this before, but different historians who, who weren't Christians have said Christians seem to be extremely generous with their money and stingy with sex. When, you know, we, or the pagan culture, the Romans, are extremely generous with sex and stingy with money. 
This, it's just so different that we're going to have contentment rather than covetousness. That we're going to say, the Lord's my helper, that, he is, that Jesus is, is with me, that he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you. I want you to hear this promise. How can you and I be content? This is so interesting. He says, Jesus is with you. This is different to me. Usually that phrase is used to not fear. Like Jesus, like, go in all the world, preach the gospel, for I'm with you always. There's this idea of Jesus is always with us. Like, don't fear, I'm with you. It's interesting to say, be content, I'm with you. Meaning, be content, I'm enough. You don't need all these other things. Jesus is enough. Money will not satisfy you. I'm enough. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is tied to contentment. That is so fascinating to me. I don't know if I'd ever take that phrase, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and tie it to me. So be content. The idea is if you have Jesus, you have everything. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need. If, if you have Jesus, it's not about what's next or can I have this next experience, this next sexual moment, this next sexual experience. Can I have this moment with money? I just need more and more. He's saying, listen, I'm with you. Be content. Free yourself from the love of money. As the ESV says, free yourself from it. Because all, all of our hearts, whether you're extremely wealthy or poor or middle class, all of our hearts have that tendency to love money, to assume if we have money, we have everything we need. That money is my shepherd, I shall not want. No, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That if I have him, I have everything I need. And this is what it's really getting at, saying free yourself from it. So let me ask you, does money have a hold on your heart? Like, does money own you? Is that all you're thinking about? Is that all you dream about? Is that what you're thinking? Like, how can I seek first more money? You know, what is that thing that is just, just ruling your heart? You see, a good indicator money does not rule your heart is that you give it away. You know, there's a verse in 1 John 5, the last verse in 1 John, it says, uh, for, keep yourself from idols. There's this tendency to make money an idol, to make money a God. And, you know, the best way to, to not make money a God is just give away your idol. You know, if there's an idol, any idol crowded into your heart, give it away. I'll say this, generosity is the best response to covetousness. If you finally, or if you're constantly finding yourself coveting, wanting more and more, nothing's enough, I want to say be generous, live generously. Because as, as you try to accumulate and build and build, but generosity is, it's going to flow through me. I'm, it's going to leave me. It's not about me building bigger barns. It's about me giving it away. You know, I think John Wesley said, save as much as you can, make as much as you can, but give away as much as you can. Like the idea of just, it's okay to save. That's a biblical principle. It's okay to make money. It's not wrong to make money, but give it away as much as you can as well. Like, don't let that rule and guard your heart. You know, the way that you think about different formation things. So, what, form, what is forming you? What is forming me? And we watch videos of how to make money. We read books on how to, you know, rich dad, poor dad. We, re we read all these things. We take all these things. Not that they're necessarily wrong, but we're just, those things are forming us and forming us and forming us. Now, I want to introduce a new formation to you. Tithing. Give it away. Old Testament thing, yes. God says, you know what, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you work on this through giving away 10%. But here's the New Testament. The New Testament, there's no number attached to it. There's not. The New Testament, in fact, whether you read the book of Acts or just early church writers, it seemed to not have a number because it was much more than 10%. It was just a generous lifestyle. It was just a, these things are constantly forming me into thinking I need more. We're made in the American dream is to want more and more and more. Those things are constantly forming us and shaping us. And God has another spiritual formation tool, and that is generosity. And that God is saying, don't let that own you. And I'll say, man, over the years, God has really had to do this work in my heart. I tithe as like a teenager out of obligation. I gave away 10% because that's what you do, right? 
And it's turned from to like a, a discipline that you hate or despise or I'll just do it to something where God, I can't wait to be generous. And it's not always like that. My heart's still wicked. There can still be moments where it's like, oh, but there's extra income, we could use it. My heart still wants to defend itself, but there's just something about generosity. We go, Lord, this is yours. I'm not gonna have a closed fist. I'm gonna have open hands. Lord, you give, you take away, blessed be your name. You know what, rather than you taking away, let me give it away first. <laughs> rather than, you know, the, the man who Jesus says, you fool, do not know that your life's gonna be taken from you. you. Rather than it being taken from him, let me just give it. You know, you can read about this. You know, it, there's, a, there's a sacrifice, obviously. You know, whatever, if you're, whatever income you have and, and you're giving away a percentage, that, there's a sacrifice to that. But there comes a point, I was reading a story of a wealthy businessman who loves the Lord. He says, listen, for so, he said this, he said, someone making $30,000 a year, giving away 10% is a sacrifice to their lifestyle. He goes, where I'm at, giving away 70% of my income isn't a sacrifice of lifestyle, it's just I'm not adding to my luxury. Meaning, it's not, sometimes it might be a sacrifice to your lifestyle or you might come to this place in life where you go, I have everything I need and more. It's not about a percentage, it's not about a number. It's about, I don't need anything, just to keep increasing, 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 increasing my lifestyle and how I live. What's that gonna do? Oh, great, I built bigger barns. The, the whole point of this text is saying, let brotherly love continue. What is he saying? Show hospitality. Remember those in prison, show support. Have holy relationships, relationships that God defined. Have, have contentment. Don't be covetous. Know that Jesus, I will never leave you. The promise is to Jesus. Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. He's just saying love's gonna continue in these kind of ways. Love's gonna grow your generosity, grow your love of strangers, grow your love of support, grow your love of healthy and holy relationships, not imagining things, not taking things to an emotional level or any level. Love's gonna look like this. We're gonna fight for just healthy and holiness. You know, I want to read this last verse about contentment. Paul wrote a lot about contentment in 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 6, he says this, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and a many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. There is so much here. You know, again, money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is neutral. Again, money can be used for good. It can be used for bad. Money can be used for God's glory and God's kingdom. Money can be used for Satan's glory and Satan's kingdom. Money is just a neutral thing. It's, my, it's that heart of that. And he says, just desiring to be rich, just know you're falling into a trap, a temptation, a snare. That's a trap. Again, is money sinful? No, it's neutral. But when you desire it above Christ, when you're pursuing it more than him, just watch out. He goes, hey, some have even strayed from the faith. This phrase of some have pierced themselves through with many sorrows by, by pursuing it, by loving it. Hear that. Why pierce yourself through when Jesus is already pierced for us? Like, why take on more pain, more sorrows in the pursuit of money when Jesus says, I was already pierced for you. You don't need to pierce yourself with more sorrows. I'm the man of sorrows who was pierced. I'm the one who took all that pain so you can walk in freedom and walk in newness of life. And he's saying, godliness with contentment, that's great gain. You know, you came nothing with, into this world with, you came into this world with nothing, you'll leave this world with nothing. And there's this call for Christians to say, listen, be content with what God has done. Can you work harder, make more? Sure. As you do that though, you seek to be generous. You don't seek to let it own you and rule you. Here, here's what I'm, the whole point of this is. C the Christian style of love 
is going to look incredibly different than the world's style of tolerance. We're not just called to tolerate people, we're called to love people. Love is way greater than tolerance. Love is saying, I will sacrifice, I will give, I will be content, I will show hospitality, I'll invite you in, I will go to you, I'll remember you, I'll serve you. We're called to this greater form of love in this moment right now that we're in. Christians, we have an opportunity to show love that the world would be surprised by. But you're a Christian, I thought you were going to judge me and hate me and be rude to me. It's like we have a moment right now to love the stranger, to take them in, to go to the foreigner, to go to the outcast, to go to the prisoner. We have to show them uh, that greed is not going to corrupt us, that uh, lust is not going to corrupt us. He's saying, let your love come in this way. Because guess what? All those things we talked about today, way different than how the world does them. The world has the us versus them, not Christians. You know, the world, for those who are in prison, they deserve to be there, not us. We're not going to have that attitude. The world has this mindset that, you know, just sleep with whoever you want, do whatever you want. We have a higher view of marriage. The world has this accumulate, take in as much as you can. And you know what? People are out to take money from you, so don't, don't give them anything. We're going to be generous and say marriage and sex is holy, money is not holy. And we're going to have a different mindset and approach to these things. He says, let brotherly love continue. And then he just puts a face on love. And church, how, I can't really do other, anything other than say, here's the word of God. Holy Spirit, take this and apply it to our hearts. Help us embody it. Help us carry it out. Help us not affirm the stereotypes the world might already have of Christians. Help us be like that pastor and his wife to Rosaria Butterfield, who showed her great love, who, that love that transformed her and brought her to Jesus. Let us be like that. And my hope is that we'll just take this and that it'll truly become a part of our lifestyle, that by God's grace and by God's spirit, we would walk this out. Amen? I'm going to pray and have a couple quick announcements. So let's just pray it out. Father, we just, um, we ask that by your spirit and by your love and by your grace, you would do these things to our heart. We can't fake it. We can't force it. But Lord, as we abide in you, we, we ask that you would just give us a generous heart, a hospitable heart. God, a, a heart that seeks out and goes to and remembers a heart that is holy and pure, a heart that does not entertain lustful thoughts or desires, a heart that does not try to re redefine sex and relationships. But Jesus, we look to you. We, we just ask that you would do this. We ask that you would stretch us in hospitality and stretch us on our views uh, of sex and intimacy. God, I know that in every way, this is a different than maybe how most of the people would approach this, these topics. Lord, help us to truly live different, to live like you, Jesus, the way of you, Jesus. And uh, we just ask that you'd be a part of our time in small groups this week, in our houses, in our homes, that there'd be contentment, there'd be generosity, that Jesus, you would just do something within us that could only be by your grace and for your glory. And so um, we ask, you know, as we say amen, as we go into our week, our lives, our work week, um, that Jesus, you prepare our hearts for these moments where we can step up and show this kind of love and generosity. In your name, amen.